The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is a real honor to welcome my guest, Dr. E.G. Villianatos. He is the author of Poison Spring, The Secret History of Pollution and the EPA. Dr. Valianatos earned a B.A. in zoology from the University of Illinois and a doctorate in history from the University of Wisconsin. He also did postdoctoral studies in the history of science at Harvard University. He worked for two years on Capitol Hill and 25 years for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. His book is an expose of those years at the EPA. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Valianatos at a wonderful meeting that is hosted by Beyond Pesticides. It was at their 33rd National Pesticide Forum in Orlando, Florida. Welcome, Dr. Valianatos. Thank you very much. Your book is excellent, and as I was reading it, I thought to myself, I don't know whether to be outraged, saddened, or simply to use this book as a tool for making changes in our society that are desperately needed. You were hired in 1979 by the EPA as a program analyst. Tell me how you came to work for the EPA and what you did there. I was living in Alexandria, Virginia during that time, and I was more or less finishing my two years on Capitol Hill. And in my own neighborhood, I met a person, a man who worked for the U.S. EPA. And in our discussions, uh, we discovered that we had some mutual interest. And he said to me, I'm going to introduce you to some, a group of EPA scientists that they want to hire an additional person to accelerate what they're doing. And that's what happened. It was simple as that. And I had an interview. And very briefly, they hired me, and I joined a group of EPA scientists that were dealing with the information that chemical companies give to the government. So our task then was to determine what kind of information, I mean, from the chemical and biological perspective, what sort of information EPA needed to make an assessment of chemicals, because that's primarily what what the business of the industry is to provide chemicals for an examination and then to get the government approval for the use of those chemicals. And the group that I was working with, they're called the Office of Pesticide Programs, and they deal with the regulation of the insecticides, fungicides, herbicides, rodenticides, all this stuff farmers use to produce food. And I, I did not know very much about that. I mean, I had chemistry in college and I had a zoology degree, so I was, I understood the science, but then it didn't take me very long to figure out that there was something <laughs> in addition to the scientific dimensions of regulation. And that's the beginning of my work at the US EPA in 1979. So as an unassuming consumer, I think that probably I'm not alone in thinking that if the EPA registers a pesticide and if it is so-called approved, then using it according to the label directions gives me some level of safety. True? Yeah, well, this is the general perception, but the reality is 
definitely different for two reasons. One, while I was there, I did not discover, but I learned that there was kind of a legacy of corruption. That is, the chemical industry for several decades was faking, faking the data which they sent to the government to have their products approved. And an example of that uh, gross violations of our democratic and scientific culture was a laboratory outside of Chicago called Industrial Biotest. They started in the mid-50s, and the government put it out of business in 1983. In, in between, when the EPA, when a scientist discovered the fraud in 1976, and then they fully investigated the laboratory, they discovered that the corruption was at the, its very highest. When, for instance, an animal died in a test, they would replace the animal with a brand new animal, and there would be no problem. They would do a 20-month study in 10 months, and then they fake the numbers for the rest of the time. At any rate, after that, the government sat it down in, 19, in 1983, but then they discovered a number of other smaller-scale laboratories that were doing exactly the same thing. And so that's number one while negates all this idea that if the government approves, it must be okay if I use the directions that appear on the label of the can. The number two problem with the accepting that kind of reality is that the, the farmer or the user never uses what he thinks he or she thinks it's using. Why? Because that primary chemical, the so-called active ingredient, is always mixed up with a number of other chemicals which may be even more toxic than the original chemical. And if you take chemistry, you find out that if you mix molecules, you sometimes potentiate the, the impact of the final product, so that's exactly what happens. Hmm. So if you take chemical, it's mixed up with a number of other chemicals, and therefore the effect is far more greater than what the label of the can says it is. So those two reasons, we really cannot trust the existing system as is. So let's talk a little bit about the testing procedure, because... I want to make sure I understand. So there are outside labs that do testing for the EPA. There are also tests that the industry does, which I would think would have some sort of conflict of interest issue. And then there's the EPA itself. Does the EPA do tests within the agency? No, not do any tests. I mean, EPA did have laboratories, and they have a, probably another laboratory left, but they don't do tests in order to have a chemical approved do tests in order to find out that the data that they receive from the industry is valid or fraudulent. Uh. The, the regrettable reality is that the government and the laws give the industry the right to do its own testing. So industry company X hires laboratory Y, they pay them X amount of money, and then a year or two years later they get the, a report with the results of the testing, and that report comes to the government, and the government decides on the basis of that report. And what I already said is that from the 50s to the 70s and later, the government discovered that those reports were fraudulent because the chemical industry did so. That is, they fake the data hmm. in order to get perfect reports to get their products approved. Hmm. So anybody thinking seriously about all this they have to decide to conclude that we need an independent national laboratory to divorce the chemical industry from its products. That is, to do an independent laboratory to do the testing 
so that the reports would be authentic and not illegitimate as they may have been, may continue to be today. Absolutely. So I'm going to bring up different issues that you discuss in your book because I think they all relate to maybe some misconceptions or misperceptions that we as innocent consumers may have. And that has to do with inert compounds within these pesticide products. And when I say pesticide, just so our listeners know, I'm talking about herbicides, fungicides, etc. The whole gamut of chemicals that we would apply in agricultural settings. So there are inerts and there are active ingredients. And as I'm reading your book, I'm discovering that the inerts, maybe we think of them as being not chemically active or biologically active, when indeed they are and may even be more harmful than the active ingredient. Yeah, this is exactly what I was referring to a second ago. They mix the active ingredient with all these other chemicals which the government misleadingly calls them inerts. I mean, an inert part like water, for instance, will not kill you, will not poison you. But this stuff is really very toxic, sometimes more toxic than the active ingredient. Right. For instance, take petroleum distillers. They are almost by definition carcinogens, cancer-causing cancer chemicals, and yet they are used as inerts. When EPA in 1972 banned DDT, for instance, well, later on, chemical industry picked up that DDT and they mixed it with other chemicals and they called DDT inert. That's the sort of thing that nullifies the science of the original product which the farmer thinks he or she is using in the field. So, as a dietitian, I get a lot of literature from the fruit and vegetable associations, and most of that, I'm calling it literature, it's really more like propaganda, though, to be honest, because it's very pro-industry, it always puts a positive spin on these chemicals, and the message that we get, and even as consumers, is that we need these chemicals to quote-unquote feed the world, and that if we didn't use these pesticides that we wouldn't have enough fruits and vegetables for everyone to consume. How do you respond to that line of thinking? Yes, I do in, in, the, same, in the same way, in the, in the following way. If you have two farmers next to each other, one person having, let's say, five acres, and the other one has 5,000 acres, the person, this small farmer with five acres, can probably outproduce the 5,000-acre farmer per acre. That is, he can produce more bushes per acre, in the small-scale farm than in the larger one. So the very idea that we need all these massive-scale farms to feed the world is almost illusionary, and it's just another tactic for the big companies to continue to do exactly what they have been doing for decades and to get subsidies as well from the government for doing this sort of thing. Well, you have multiple stories in the book, but I want to pull one specific story out about Women living in an area in Oregon where the rate of miscarriages is higher than normal. In fact, it's quite disturbing. And one of the women in the community writes to the EPA director and says, I want you to come and investigate this community. And they do. And it looks like some of the chemicals that are being sprayed on forested areas around where these women live are the culprit. Tell me why, with that level of evidence, these chemicals were not banned. Yeah, we are, we are dealing, uh, in this case, with 245T and 24D. 
this was the combination of these two herbicides or weed killers that the U.S. Army used in Vietnam under the name of Agent Orange. So these women could not, they had miscarriages and they couldn't conceive a baby, so the, the government, that is the EPA, sent a number of scientists, and what they did, they investigated the area, they found out, number one, that the, the timber companies and the Forest Service were using this 245T and 24D. And, of course, what they did discover that was really extraordinary was that in a creek, very close to where the women lived, they found the tetradioxin. This is a molecule of extreme toxicity, which nobody produces, but it's a contaminant. Nevertheless, it's the most acutely toxic chemical ever manufactured by human beings. So the, the discovery of dioxin eventually killed 245T. The government began proceedings against the, this product, and eventually they got rid of it in 1983. But they, I don't know the private communication between EPA and uh, Dow Chemical, but they decided not to touch the 2,4-D, which is still an extremely popular herbicide in the pharma community, and it's used to this very day. No compensation for the women? Uh, the women, they, they were, I mean, to the degree that they brought this to, to, our, to the government's attention, they, uh, we are very grateful to them because thanks to that activity, they got rid of the 245T. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether they were compensated by Dow Chemical, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. E.G. Valianatos. He is the author of a terrific book called Poison Spring, The Secret History of Pollution and the EPA. If I remember correctly from that chapter, the individuals who were working on this particular investigation had their jobs changed within the agency. Is that correct? Yes. The... um the branch chief was moved to Florida. He, he was sent to the University of Florida supposedly to supervise some kind of a farm worker program that they had there. Another key toxicologist, he was sent to the AID, to the Agency for International Development, which sent him to Africa, all the way yeah. to Egypt. And in other words, they dismantled the very organization, scientific organization with the PA, which discover all this business in Oregon and the dioxin component. So they didn't want to have anything like that anymore. So they simply dispersed the scientists, and they, and that's it. That was like a pound of flesh from the industry. The industry demanded a pound of flesh, and they got it by dismantling the very scientific organization that discovered the existence of the dioxin near the women in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And the Reagan years seemed particularly offensive to me in terms of, you know, there were so many more labs and there was so much more investigation. And then it seemed to me that starting with the Reagan years, that interest in protecting the public really took a different spin and it was going to be more of an industry-protecting agency. Yes, indeed. Indeed, Mr. Reagan appointed uh, Ann Gorsuch from Colorado. And this woman, she became the administrator and her first act in office was to fire all lawyers responsible for enforcing the law. So with that kind of a message, it was clear to me and to everybody else that this administration, the Reagan people, they wanted to dismantle EPA. So they began by scaring us, by issuing uh, notices of reef, that is the reduction in force or firing of younger staff. And they, Mr. Reagan appointed George Bush, the senior, to become a kind of a, like a director of uh, what they call it, something like a regulatory relief 
Yeah. Regulatory relief at a time that there was very little regulation going on. But yeah. Nevertheless, the industry demanded they do that, and they did it. Yeah. And of, in addition to that, the Reagan administration began to dismantle the EPA laboratories themselves, and uh, so it was a, it was in a state of terror, I would say, for the eight years that uh, Mr. Reagan was a president. You know, I'm curious about this whole idea of. Using the precautionary principle, of course, this is the foundation that the EU uses when debating whether or not a chemical is going to enter their society versus our society that has a different way of weighing risk. You know, that we, we look at the risk-benefit ratios and that there's some sort of an acceptable risk that we assume. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this whole notion of what is an acceptable risk? How does the EPA make those distinctions? It, it, it's really a kind of a philosophical and moral dilemma, something that uh, I would never want to decide on, because you put money for the death of some person, no number of persons, for instance. Uh, you say you accept one, one per million, that is one death per million of human beings. And how do we know that it's only one rather than 5,000 or 6,000 or 500,000? We don't know. And in addition to that, you put uh, the economic benefits that go straight to the industry versus the benefits of protecting human health and the environment. That, to me, is unconscionable that you can even put money next to the value of human life and health. Right. So th- that is a very kind of a scheme to continue to do this kind of immoral things, that is to allow things in the environment which science tells you they will actually hurt people. In fact, they may even kill people. Yet we allow this to go on so that the benefit, the economic benefit can go to the producers of that particular product, chemical or whatever it is. Don't you wonder how these people sleep at night? Fortunately, I never made those decisions, but I know exactly what you mean. And I was always criticizing this sort of thing. I used to, one of my many jobs in that place was to provide alternatives yeah. So I used to do uh, scholarly research into alternatives to this sort of giant agriculture and uh, alternatives to pesticides. So I was investigating organic farming and traditional agriculture and coming up with all sorts of ways of doing the same thing but without using the poisons. Right. And my colleagues, both economists and biologists, would say to me, don't waste your time. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to do anything of what you say. We're going to continue to replace one chemical with another. That was the order of things. It's interesting that you bring that up, actually, because one of the questions I had for you after reading this book is you mentioned that, you know, we're not really asking the right questions. So we need a new or different set of questions rather than the choice or the question has always been between one chemical and another rather than between one chemical and this alternative, as you say, that you were investigating. And if they've hired you to do these kinds of investigations, why on earth were they not paying attention to your results? That was the uh, the, the tragedy. I mean, uh, on the face of it, uh, it was pretty waste of effort. Uh, not only that, it wasn't me alone. They had a small section, they called it integrated pest management, where they had about five to ten biologists and chemists all together, supposedly coming up with alternative strategies to, to do this or that in agriculture. And they were always proposing less to use less chemicals, to use the less harmful chemicals, or to use alternative chemicals. And again, no one paid attention to them. They existed, and probably I existed, as a kind of a lipstick service 
Yeah. In other words, it's a propaganda. You want to confuse the people, and you have to tell them, hey, look, we have people that are working for alternatives. We are protecting your health and the environment. We're using good science, and so on and so on. But they really were not serious because the orders to what EPA does does not necessarily come from EPA itself. They come from the White House and Congress. And this is the paradox. You have a wonderful institution that we absolutely need, EPA, and yet you have it surrounded by hundreds or thousands of lobbyists and the men and women in Congress plus whoever runs the White House. And all this interest, you know, completely neutralize the scientific evidence within the agency. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I remember reading the correspondence and the files of this uh, biologist, a chemist, and uh, bi biologist especially concerned about honeybees, you know, being wiped out since the 70s down to today. And they were begging their superiors to put a moratorium on those neurotoxins they used to kill, that actually harm the honeybees, they killed them. And instead of doing that, they were expanding the approval of those neurotoxins from, let's say, soybeans to corn to alfalfa to other crops. So the danger, therefore, for the honeybees and other beneficial insects increased exponentially to the point today that honeybee is threatened with extinction. Yeah. And that's the history. That's the kind of tragedy that we, we actually face in right now. What do you think we need to do in order to have the kind of EPA that you and I and probably our listening public would like to see? Well, number one, I would immediately try to make the EPA an independent agency. That is, the president could appoint the director, but not the political appointees, not the other political appointees. That director or the administrator ought to have the right to choose his or her own deputies. And then I would make it illegal for any lobbyist to approach or to get into the EPA. Everything should be by correspondence, not by person. While I was there, I can tell you there were hundreds, in fact, thousands of trips taken by EPA staff funded by the industry. The number two insidious influence is that of the closing door. I would shut down that closing door. That is, the political appointees of the president, let's say the President Obama right now, in two years, these guys, men or women, they are looking for another job. So they are looking at the industry, which they theoretically regulate, and they hope that the industry will actually hire them. And it does. If the industry goes to them and they say, hey, we want you. And if the salary that they make now is, let's say, $200,000, they will make over a million in the new position. Why? Because the industry wants the information that these people have. Right. They need the names, the telephone numbers, the emails, all the contacts that this person has made in four years or eight years. So we need to shut down that revolving door. Yeah. And if we do that, and then number three, I would actually create an independent national laboratory that would do the studies independent of the industry, and therefore the government ought to have some confidence that the reports that they are getting are really honest reports. They tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. This chemical is dangerous, and therefore we're not going to approve it, that sort of thing. Another dimension to that is that we ourselves, the, the people who are listening to you right now and listening to me, and they ought to, frankly, to read my book. I mean, why? Because this book gives a perfect picture of what the government does and the corrupting collections they have in the industry. With that knowledge, they can begin to do things for themselves, like eating organic food, like supporting politicians who are for ecological sanity rather than this stuff that we don't like. And if we do all this together, then we have a more intelligent public that actually reacts, gets outraged by this kind of abuse of power, and frankly, they threaten our very, very health. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
the ecological effects out in out in the field, out in nature, are horrendous. They are invisible, but each time that you spray a herbicide, and if the if the area, the field is next to river, and it rains, all the stuff will get into the river, will kill millions of fish. And we remember the story of the DDT and what it did to birds and so on and so on. And frankly, the natural world is as precious as we are. We cannot survive with a natural world which is not healthy. I agree with you. And your whole idea of this ecological sanity really is an important concept. And there are so many points in this book, and I agree with you. The whole reason for having you on as my guest is because I want everyone to read Poison Spring, The Secret History of Pollution and the EPA, and to become outraged and raise a different set of questions, one of which is, where are the watchdog organizations? Where is the media when we need them? The Government Accountability Office, why are they not stepping in and putting a halt to this? I don't understand. Neither do I. We need to help them to think about all these things, and my book is simply one way to help to do that, and I, I trust that Americans take a, take a minute and read this book and, and then act accordingly. What I love about your book is it's a great story, many great stories woven together, but your notes section is terrific. And if you take the time to read the notes that go with the text, for example, that's where I discovered that there was actually an effort at one point to use some toxic fungicides in an OBGYN clinic in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, you know, you read this and you think, oh, my gosh, that's immoral. Yeah, there are a, a number of illegal and immoral acts going on all over, all over. And regrettably, the citizen is completely divorced from all this reality and uh, we need to live in a real world. In other words, we have to accept the world as is, and to, we have to know everything that's going on within it. And if we do that, then our philosophy changes, our mindset changes, and we can do things differently. If you have a choice between X and Y individual, you can vote for the person who wants not only a healthy environment, but a healthy human being, mm-hmm. because the two are interrelated and interdependent, and we need to begin to love the natural world. And because we live within it and we cannot be divorced from it. Well, I think that your book offers us an opportunity to understand what's going on and then take action steps. I love in the acknowledgement section of your book, you really wrote this book for your children and your students. In the face of such discouragement with what's going on in the agency, with just one minute left, what keeps you going? They kept me going. The, the idea is that, uh, you know, I'm a historian, a historian of science, and I noticed and I saw these stories, uh, whether bad or, for the most part, corrupt, but nevertheless, they have a tremendous value because they expose the human being as is. And I said to myself, since while I was working for EPA, I could not be exactly effective, the least I can do is as a service to the American people is to write a story that will actually tell them what their government is really doing versus what they think it's doing or what the government says it does. So that, 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 that's really what kept me going, is to be able to write a story that would tell the truth in this part of life, which is very fundamental. Well, Dr. Valianatos, I want to thank you so much for writing this book, Poison Spring, The Secret History of Pollution and the EPA. I want to thank you for being my guest. 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Again, we've been speaking with Dr. E.G. Valianatos, the author of Poison Spring, The Secret History of Pollution and the EPA. Thank you for this book and for speaking out. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.